and welcome to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture, bringing you the voices of the voiceless from Calcutta to Casablanca, here on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and 93.7 FM in northern San Diego, as well as streaming worldwide on kpfk.org. My name is David Lloyd, and I'm a member of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective, that brings you your weekly half hour of SWANA Region Radio. And my co-host today is Rana Sharif. Welcome, Rana. Thank you, David. All our shows can be found as podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Breaker. Just search for SWANA Region Radio. You may also tune in at any time and listen to our archive shows under the Programs tab at kpfk.org. This Memorial Day weekend, when Americans customarily commemorate military personnel fallen in its numerous and now seemingly endless wars, a flag for every fallen hero, as they say, Swana Region Radio turns its attention to the largely forgotten toll that those wars have taken on the countries and people that have been devastated by them. In the Vietnam War, the United States lost some 58,000 troops, but Vietnamese deaths are estimated at anywhere between 2.1 and 3.2 million. As the revered statesman Henry Kissinger turned 100 on Saturday, he had yet to be charged with responsibility for the deaths of possibly 150,000 Cambodian civilians during the 1973 U.S. bombing campaign there. Again, while the United States lost around 36,000 military personnel, Korean civilian casualties north and south during the largely forgotten Korean War amounted to well over half a million. Their deaths are not being commemorated this weekend. But U.S. wars in the 21st century may have been at once more devastating and have certainly taken place much further from the public view. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, a preemptive war of choice that amounts to crimes against humanity, its invasion and occupation of Afghanistan in the wake of the 9-11 attacks lasted 20 years, ending in the shambolic withdrawal of August 2021. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues what is considers counterterrorism operations in more than 80 countries and maintains more than 750 military bases around the world many of them located in West Asia and Northern and Eastern Africa. Increasingly, U.S. warfare is conducted over the horizon via drone surveillance and aerial bombings through the continuing presence of U.S. boots on the ground in many parts of the Swana region should not be underestimated. U.S. troops remain in Syria and Iraq and across the Sahel region and bases in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. Turkey, Djibouti, Chad, Niger are only a few through which it maintains its enduring presence in the region. At the same time, many of America's most devastating wars have been fought by its proxies, like the Saudi UAE campaign in Yemen, or Israel's 75-year war on the Palestinian people, both supported by the U.S. with billions of dollars annually. The impact of the U.S.'s actual wars and of its ongoing military domination of the region is both direct and indirect. Brown University Watson Center's invaluable Costs of War project, to which we'll link in our show announcements, summarizes some of the dismal statistics. Over 937,000 people have died in the post-9-11 wars in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, to name only a few. Due to direct war violence, 
and several times as many due to the reverberating effects of war that are sometimes called indirect. An estimated 3.6 to 3.7 million people have died indirectly in post 9-11 war zones, bringing the death toll to at least 4.5 or 4.6 million and still counting. Over 387,000 civilians have been killed as a result of the fighting. 38 million war refugees and displaced persons have had to leave their homes from this region. Globally, the proportion of displaced people who were children reached over 50% in 2017. And more than 7.6 million children under five are suffering from acute malnutrition or wasting in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia. Today, we will focus on the impact of U.S. wars on Afghanistan and Iraq with our guest Dina Al-Adib. Dina Al-Adib is an Iraqi-born feminist scholar activist, artist, cultural worker, and mother. She is a previous UC President's postdoctoral fellow in the Department of American Studies at the University of California, Davis. Her work is on U.S. imperial war geographies, militarism, and racial capitalism as they manifest through collective memory, petroculture, material and visual culture in the Middle East region, with an emphasis on Swana, diasporic and queer transnational art and futurisms. She's currently working on her book manuscript entitled The Architecture of War, The U.S. Destruction of Iraq, Petrocultural Imaginaries and Collective Memory in the Persian Gulf region. As an artist, she's also developing an ongoing multimedia project entitled An Archive of Future Memories, Letters to My Daughter. A warm welcome to Swana Region Radio, we look forward to hearing about some of your many projects, as well as your analysis of the impact of the U.S. war on Iraq. So perhaps we can begin, if you could, Dina, telling us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and your work. Yes, I want to say thank you, Anna. Thank you, David. Thank you for the work and commitments and solidarity. And I, I am honored to be part of this conversation. So thank you for inviting me. And uh, thank you for being, you know, steadfast. A lot of people are not having this conversation 20 years later, which is heartbreaking. And um, I think this should be part of actually mainstream conversations. <laughs> um, you know, how could we still be in war in Iraq and in Afghanistan and many other places around the world um, and are completely, completely ignorant of, um, you know, our role, our contribution, and uh, instead of looking at what's, you know, what's happening around the world and looking at our impact, uh, we are be you know, we're continue to be insular and, and uh, I mean, obviously racist, <laughs> but also, right. you know, I, I feel like the word ignorance, I always, you know, struggle with that word. I feel like, you know, I need to come up with a better word, but, you know, ignorance is, is, is okay for now, at least. Um, so, you know, like I want to say, uh, like I said earlier, um, thank you again for doing this. I think it's critical, especially for this weekend. Um, this conversation needs to be had in many other venues. And, um, you know, just to say a little bit about myself. So I was born in Iraq and um, my family actually was deported from Iraq uh, in 1980. Uh, a long story, I will focus mostly on um it was during the Iraq-Iran uh, war in 1980. And my family, like I said, was deported. Uh, we ended up escaping to Kuwait uh, when the invasion of Iraq happened. Uh, and that's when, around 1990, was my senior year of high school. I was graduating basically in less than a year that the invasion happened. And I ended up not by choice, arriving in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. 
um, and uh, right away looked for you know avenues to engage with what was happening. And it was really disheartening at the time. So what we're talking about, like, you know, I arrived 1990 in the fall, so around 91, really, uh, right when the invasion, I mean, right after the invasion of Iraq, sorry, the invasion of Kuwait, and right when the, the US invasion of Iraq had just happened. It was really disheartening, not much was happening. And I finally found at the time, uh, what, well, this organization that is known as uh, the Answer Coalition, which at the time was the IAC, the International Action Center. Um, and they were uh, honestly uh, the only organization that I found on the ground doing the work. And I was involved with them for many years. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually uh, myself and a few other Arab activists came together and decided to uh, create a space for us to have these conversations that really uh, are not just anti-imperial, anti-war, but are a bit nuanced about what that means for us. You know, so being critical of Zionism, being critical of of you know left politics, right? Which I think I just want to stop here and say something about that. You know, I think where we fail and continue to fail today, and the left is is this this kind of duality that we're stuck in, you know, so you're anti-empire, you're anti-US empire, and, um, and somehow fall in the trap of then supporting the other side, which usually are dictators that were actually, you know, put in power, puppets by the US empire, for the most part. Uh, so I think, you know, that was, and the reason I'm bringing it up here is because one, it's still an issue that we're dealing with, and it was an issue back then. It was an issue with my activism, not only with IAC, but with even Arab organizing circles uh, and so on. I mean, you know, uh, with, you know, my, my history in organizing is a lot, is, you know, this is long, so I'm not gonna get into that. But I think the reason I'm bringing this specific part out is because that issue is still on the table, right? We're to, we're, we see it in, in Syria right now, we see it in, in other places around the world. Um, and I think, um, it is easy to, you know, to fall in that trap. And I understand why, uh, because the conversation is already very, um, very marginal, right? Very marginalized. People are not interested in having this conversation. It's not part of the uh, kind of the, the media scape <laughs> uh, or kind of even, you know, part of people's lived experience is so removed so far. Um, of course, the media has its own part in, in creating this, this, uh, uh, this ignorance. Um, so I understand when you're organizing the need to then be kind of bipolar, right? Uh, not bipolar, I guess one polar. Um, and for me, it felt like a bipolar that I was, you know, as an Iraqi who lived in, in, you know, in Iraq and um, during the, first, you know, during the Iraq-Iran war, especially, uh, and the invasion Iraq, I understood the you know the role that uh, the U.S. played in um, supporting Saddam, right? Uh, I can talk about it you know more in detail if you want. Uh, so for me as an organizer, when I came to the U.S., I was clear about being anti-imperialist and anti-U.S. hegemony in the region, uh, you know, anti the neoliberal campaign that's being waged, um, and so on and so forth. But I was also you know critical of uh, governments. You know, puppet governments put in power to to push forward U.S. interests and agendas, right? Anyways, I'll just stop here because I think, yeah. Well, actually, I wanted to pick up on that. You mentioning yeah. U.S. agendas, and yeah. 
your research investigates the interconnected relationship between material and visual culture and militarism, and in particular, energy resources, especially right. oil. Yeah. And it analyzes the effects of war and extractive economies in general. So I wondered if you could say more about your research and how it helps us understand the causes of the several wars against Iraq um, and yeah. also against Afghanistan even, uh, and then the long-term effects of, of those wars as a result of those interests being played out. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit to the earlier question. In the aftermath of World War II, against the backdrop of the collapse of the European great powers and the dismantlement of the British colonial empire, Arab nationalist movements spearheaded the processes of decolonization in the Arab Middle East. Although former colonial powers maintained quasi-control of the region, their former colonies continued to depend on them and were subject to their political pressures. Having led the Allied victory, the U.S. was now positioned to dominate world politics. Uh, it was not until the dismantlement of the Soviet Union that the United States emerged as the singular global hegemonic power rushing to ensure the swift development of neoliberal markets and geopolitical control of energy resources in the Middle East region and beyond. Geographical expansion was also made possible through new modes of warfare, which were developed in relation to the crisis of capitalism. And I'll talk about that in a second and define it. Iraq was now the new frontier, and I should add Afghanistan, of course, uh, these two, two specific places, but actually in this specific um, point that I'm making, I'm, I'm obviously focusing on Iraq. Iraq was the new frontier to practice the science of war, enabling the technological and military industrial complex, complex to advance intelligence and surveillance capabilities. As a response of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait on August 2nd, 1990, President George Bush uh, Sr. in his address before a joint session of Congress on the State of the Union on September 11th, 1990, presented, quote unquote, a new world order. The Bush Doctrine pronounced a far-reaching paradigm of unilaterally targeting U.S. interests by way of new military strategies, infrastructure, and securitization of the Gulf region. According, accordingly, U.S. military operations were finally established and dispatched from geostrategic bases in the Persian Gulf states. Commanding the coalition forces, the U.S. launched the first Gulf War on Iraq, which set the stage for the ruthless destruction of Iraq and the expansion of neoliberalism, reconfiguration, reconfiguring the Gulf-built environment. Let me stop here and talk about what I mean here. Um, during the Iraq-Iran War, right, the 1980 war, um, which was, you know, supported by uh, the U.S., right, um, and was supported by, you know, on, so, the U.S. was integral to supporting both the Iranian and the Iraqi uh, military infrastructure and, and, and the regimes, right? We know about the Iran-Contra, right? Uh, where uh, I don't want to necessarily get about in, into the Iran-Contra, but that was one specific um, incident that was, um, you know, made somehow uh, public to the media, uh, to the, to, uh, um, was, was, was public to somewhat, right? Uh, it was exposed, yeah. Exposed, thank you. Like, got stuck here yeah. on my wording. Um, and since then, the US has been waiting for a moment like this, like the Gulf War, the first one, to be able to establish not only control over Iraq, right, and the Gulf region, but really to create an infrastructure in the region that has long term 
effects. What do I mean by infrastructure? I'll focus on one example. Uh, Qatar uh, actually, uh, which was a Gulf state, a small teeny Gulf state, uh, the, ruling, the ruling family is the wealthiest ruling family in the world, um, basically financed U.S. Central Command. What does that mean? So U.S. Central Command, one I should define is, uh, is not what I think most people understand it to be. It is not just uh, kind of in control of operations in, in, in the region. It, it is in charge of operations all the way to East Africa, North Africa, uh, Central Asia, Southeast Asia. I mean, it is it is expansive, and this is not only in control. Central Command is not only in control of you know air operations, but also uh, waterways, right? Ac access to the Indian Ocean, the the Gulf, the Red Sea. Uh, so I think it's critical here to understand that it's not only about the geostrategic interests, but also obviously an economic one, right? Um, so I just want to say something about central command and its centrality uh, and the need for the United States to establish its presence there. And this was the, the perfect time and excuse to actually finally uh, not only establish uh, and having to finance it, but here you have a Gulf state actually uh, with open arms financing an operation that's now going on for like 20 something years, right? And at the time it was unheard of. It was, you know, um, I mean, I can talk about this more, but I'll, I'll uh, I'll go about, shall I, is it okay to continue or should I stop when you want to ask another question? No, we can, um, thank you so much for mentioning that. And I think many ways we'll go ahead and we'll continue. This will come up um, perhaps in other conversations. So for anyone in the anti-war movements, especially in the early 2000s, no war for oil was a common slogan, a slogan, excuse me. And you actually mentioned this just previously. As Edward Said famously said, if Iraq only produced oranges, there'd be no invasion. Um, how far do you think um, control of oil resources, and just to build on what you actually just shared, motivated the invasion and occupation of Iraq, which was always touted as a war to bring democracy to the region? Of course. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, it's about oil. But like I said, it's not just about oil. It's about who controls oil, right? right? It is The United States actually does not really, um, I guess, survive on Iraqi oil, right? It is about controlling uh, oil, right, and making sure that China and Russia don't, right. So um, it's also related to, you know, like I was saying, hegemonic power. It's about uh, controlling, um, you know, uh, you know, a new market. You know, um, maybe I'll say something from the paper I was reading. So the Gulf War unleashed institutional power restructuring, as well as a set of neoliberal politics and economic practices that advance entrepreneurial freedom, illustrated by free markets and free trade, private private property rights and individual liberty. The restructuring of space and community attributed to US militarization as part of a geopolitical control, securing supplies of natural resources and command of international economic trade relations. So Gulf states such as Qatar and the UAE realized their defenseless situation following the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 um, uh, due to their deficient military force and, and significant size. Consequently, the survival of these Gulf state monarchies has been tied to militarized U.S. presence on their soils. Qatar has specifically, uh, especially successful in making use of, geo of its geopolitical location by hosting U.S. Central Command, like I was saying, the most strategic base in the Gulf region. The cooperative arrangement has proved beneficial for both parties. The U.S. secured its long-term geopolitical hegemony and, and, and the Gulf states monarchies protected their vulnerable position in the region. Um, and as a result, the preservation of the Gulf states monarchies is intertwined with maintaining successful joint defense operations and policies with the US. 
10, 10 years later, the US launched the war on terror campaign as a retaliation to the September 11, 20, um, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center. The crusade, as it was referred to by uh, President uh, W. Bush on September 16, 2001 at Camp David, further advanced a viciously racist discourse that perpetuated the ongoing asymmetrical wars in the Middle East. The war on terror also justified a wide range of violent practices by American forces, including warfare, torture, kidnapping, and covert operations, operations deployed to rationalize the US invasion of Iraq and secure strategic alliances with Gulf state monarchies. The war on terror accelerated the trajectory of US empire building. So something about uh, David, uh, what David mentioned earlier about material culture that I'd like to add here. So I'm gonna start with a quote by uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, right? The Secretary of Defense, uh, Donald Rumsfeld at the time. So this is the quote. There's another way to phrase that, and that is that the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. It is basically saying the same thing in a different way, simply because you do do not have evidence that something does exist does not mean that you have evidence that it doesn't exist. End of quote. So this was uh, a press right. conference on June 6, uh, 2002. So on April 11th, uh, 2003, as the world watched the televised spectacle of the shock and awe campaign obliterate Iraq's infrastructure, then Secretary of Defense Ron Donald Rumsfeld in his media address, championed the United States invasion as a successful military operation. When pressed by reporters about the substantial human loss and destruction of cultural heritage site, material culture, and infrastructure, Ramsfield responded that the catastrophe was merely, quote unquote, collateral damage. Irritated by the journalist's unrelenting questioning about the subsequent ransacking of institutions uh, and disfiguration of monuments, Ramsfield equated the white widespread arson and looting, both by Iraqis and American soldiers with Iraqis exercising their newfound freedom against the symbolic representation of the fallen regime. He asserted, quote unquote, stuff happens and went to say that freedom's untidy and free people are free to make mistakes and commit crimes and do bad things. He maintained that the devastation and sacking of cultural institutions heritage sites and cultural monuments was a part of the process of bracing the transition to democracy and freedom in Iraq. Alarmingly, Rumsfeld was concerned that, quote, anarchy in Baghdad, in Baghdad might wash away the goodwill the United States has built. His, response, his baffled response to media inquiries about the pillaging of cultural institutions, such as the Iraqi National Museum, and other institutions is particularly, uh, indicative of how ign ignorance was deliberately produced as a strategic ploy uh, by the Secretary of Defense. So, Dina, can, can I yeah. just ask you, yeah, um, in terms of the war's impact on Iraq, mm -hmm. and I remember well the, the flip uh, <laughs> remarks by Rumsfeld that you're just quoting about, you know, what, what the impact of it on cultural institutions. Yeah. But in terms of, of the larger impact of the war on Iraq, what what for you are the most salient effects of U.S. military attacks on Iraq? And, and we should, of course, remember, since we're trying to overcome the, the kind of structured ignorance around this, that the attacks on Iraq began in 1991 exactly. with Operation Desert Storm that you mentioned exactly. right at the beginning. 
And then those were followed by a decade of sanctions that were yes. devastating under both Clinton and George W. Bush. So yes. I'm wondering when, when you think about Iraq now, what have been the most important destructive effects of, of that war on the population? And I don't know whether you go back to visit, but- um, yeah. I was actually there in January. Oh, wow. So so give us a sense of, of yeah. what has actually happened there. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Let me say something which I think is like key to this. I think for Iraqis, uh, not only has the war not ended, but it's been going on since 1980, right? So I think from the get-go, let's reframe, and thank you for saying what you said, because I think you know this is at the heart of the problem. Uh, for Iraqis living this, right, it's not all... 10 years Iraq-Iran war ended. And then, you know, you had a uh, few months of the you know, US in, you know, uh, bombing Iraq in 1991. And then 13 years later, few months of, you know, uh, uh, also some, you know, uh, the shock and awe campaign for a few months. How bad could it be? For Iraqis, that's not the reality. You know, Iraqis have been enduring some 45 years of warfare. I was five years old when, uh, the Iraq-Iran War started, and and I, I you know, I don't want to just speak for all Iraqis. I'll speak for me. For me, it's starting with you know, since I was five, um, I realized that our world has changed. Obviously, you know, I was deported. We were going to war. I mean, I don't want to get into the details at this point, but meaning, you know, you turn from this child, uh, uh, you know, a five-year-old child, you know, who was you know, playing and, and acting like a five-year-old to somehow, you know, somewhat of an adult, right? Where you don't see the world in the same way. You don't understand the same way. You don't see the world and, you know, the, 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 you don't experience the world in the same way, right? You, you, you kind of become conscious of the macro reality really fast, right? So, you know, as, as of someone of, who actually experienced this at five years old, now I'm almost 50 years old, you know, and I'm still dealing with this, not only dealing with it, I'm talking about, you know, um, you know, in my, in my book and writing about it, in my arts practice, I, you know, I, most of my projects, if not all of them are dealing with this, right? Uh, when I say this is like, you know, the consequences of the war and the effects of the war, someone's, some focus on, you know, kind of more autobiography, some about the culture and heritage, some is about petroculture. Each way, each, each of my practices are, is, is delving into these, you know, these, you know, realities uh, from different perspectives, whether macro, my, 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 you know, or uh, micro or my, my micro or macro, uh, and, and, and um, attempting to, to understand and, and survive it, you know, and, and, and make sense of it. Um, so I think that's key. I think to understand that this is, you know, 45 years and ongoing, that's, that's number one. Um, number two, I think it's important to, like you said, David, which I think also is forgotten, is the 13 years of sanctions, right? Again, actually something to do with this and related to what I just said about the 45 years. I think the larger project here is, is about the destruction of Iraq, right? This is not about, you know, a series of wars. This is about a larger project that we were talking about of destroying the, the, the most uh, the most powerful uh, slash Arab Muslim nation in the region that was spearheading a quasi Arab, quasi socialist, quasi uh, uh, Muslim 
somewhat anti quasi anti imperial project right uh, and quasi because obviously you know Iraq was not fully socialist but you know um, uh, and quasi because you know Arab and Islam has been used in many ways by the government to to push its own agendas but let's just stay, stick to the general framing of quasi and Iraq was at the heart of what Arab nationalism was and destroying Iraq was key to uh, finally putting the question, quote unquote, of Palestine uh, to, to rest. If you talk about, if you talked about Palestine right before the invasion of uh, the Iraq invasion of Kuwait and the US invasion of Iraq, Palestine was at the forefront of every single Arab nation's agenda, right? And when the invasion happened and when the US involvement began, Palestine was automatically pushed to the margins. And actually things are changing a little bit now, but let's, let's, let's stick to the larger story here. So I think it's not about just Iraq, it's, and, and obviously not just about you know, geostrategic control of the region and oil, but it's understanding that there is a collective identity, a collective memory, uh, a collective struggle that is not only related to Ar Arab nationalism or to uh, whatever, Islamic liberation, or you know a pan pan Arab pan African pan socialist, but part of a larger third world um, liberation struggle that was related to not only Palestine but to Algeria, to Ireland, uh, to um, I mean to, to so many other places around Egypt, of course, um, and, and many other countries. So I think it's about understanding this point in time where the U the United States needed. The Soviet Union to fully collapse, uh, not just uh, metaphorically or physically collapse, but the collective memory of it all. And I think to some degree, uh, it, it has succeeded, but I don't think the story ends here, right? And we're, we're, we're yes. So let me take a moment to yes, remind yes. our audience that you're listening to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture that covers the whole region of South and West Asia and Northern Africa broadcast weekly on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and streaming live on kpfk.org. Our shows are available to download at kpfk.org and can be found as podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Breaker. Many of the topics that we've discussed today have also been covered in previous shows, so when you're searching for your podcast, do scroll down the podcast show lists and explore our work at your leisure. Joining us is Dina Adib to talk about the implications of war. Dina Adib is an Iraqi-born feminist scholar activist, artist, cultural worker, and mother. She is a previous UC President's postdoctoral fellow in the Department of American Studies at the University of California, Davis. So Dina, you were just sharing with our listeners a little bit about the long-lasting impacts, uh, what we might call indirect implications and consequences to military intervention. And I'm thinking about um, to extend what you were just sharing, I'm thinking of the damage to civil infrastructure from roads to water lines and sewage facilities to hospitals, clinics, school, and in a general sense, the loss of a sense of security. 
perhaps if you can continue, can we talk a little bit about these ongoing impacts in Iraq specifically, and perhaps even Afghanistan as well? Yeah, so I think, again, what David brought up earlier about, you know, the, the, the slow the process, the slow process, slow from the outside, I think it's within Iraq, it's not a slow process. It's a very uh, shocking process of the, you know, the Iraq-Iran war, the first Gulf War, the 13 years of sanction, which was really critical in really kind of breaking down the social fabric of society. Uh, here you had a country uh, right before the the first Gulf War, where it was you know I think I'm more of a representative example. Um, you know the uh, the dinar one dinar was equal to three dollars during the invasion. It went up to I think thirty thousand dinars. I don't I can't remember. I need to like don't quote me, but it was like something like that, right? From a dollar uh, from a dinar being three dollars to you know in the thousands. Um, and, and also not to forget, you know, the, the, the sanctions really affected not only, you know, adults, it really affected children. Over a million and a half children died uh, as a consequence of the sanctions because of the lack of medicine, the lack of access to, to you know, uh, hospitals that were working. I mean, you know, people like, oh, well, what, how can a hospital not work? It's like, well, if electricity is, is targeted, if, if you know, uh, and, and, you know, electricity is going on and off. I mean, imagine if you're in an you know, incubator and electricity goes off, what happens? You know, I mean, I can go on into the details and I actually went during the, you know, the, I've been going back and forth and during the sanctions, I think it was 1998 when I was there during that period. And I went to children's hospital. We had raised through, uh, at this time, it was uh, the ADC, uh, Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, San Francisco chapter, which now has become AROC. Uh, we had raised some money to go to go back to Iraq and, and donate. And I went to a series of hospitals and went to the leukemia ward because a lot of children uh, were uh, were diagnosed with leukemia in high numbers because you know directly you know due to the sanctions and interviewed doctors, interviewed mothers. And, you know, I think what, what was the most heartbreaking is an access to a hospital. You know, there was families coming from Kurdistan who had to, who didn't have money for the bus tickets to come and bring their child, let alone leave the child there and stay with them. So they would come and drop off these children, you know, like, like I'm talking about like one-year-old, two-year-old, I mean, you know, and, and having to go back, take a bus back home and leave this child because they don't have a place to stay. You know, these small examples, I think, are really telling. Um, so yeah, uh, again, back to kind of the, you know, the macro, I think, you know, the, the, the sanctions definitely made, uh, you know, a huge kind of dent uh, in, in, in Iraqi, uh, uh, not only infrastructure, but I think in collective memory. And I think with the US invasion and ongoing um, occupation interventions has, really broken down the social fabric of society. I mean, I was there in January just recently, a few months ago, right? And um, the state of militarization is shocking. So last time I was there before this time was during the invasion. So I was there in 2004, April, 2004. It was a year after the invasion. And of course, people think, oh, a year after invasion, nothing's happening. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're, you know, it is, you know, you're walking the streets and there are US tanks everywhere. There are, um, you know, um, 
American soldiers with their rifles walking on the streets. I mean, it's, 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 the invasion was present fully for many years, right? It wasn't like a one-time kind of campaign of bombing and, that was, and then they left, right? So obviously it was very much about militarizing the, the, you know, the entire city and in the entire nation, right? So last time I was there, like I said, in 2004, and now 18, what is it, 18 years later? I can't do math, I don't have many, many years later, January, I was there and I was shocked that the, the, the Iraq was now more militarized than it was in 2004. Now the difference now it's 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 uh, you know Iraqi army <laughs> taking over U.S. tanks, uh, but it was funny because you know at, at a certain point I was in Babylon, Babel, and the security uh, there was a security checkpoint, and this guy was not I don't know what he was he was not yeah, actually like a soldier he was some I'm not sure how he fits into kind of the military infrastructure, but his his ta the tag that was on his uniform said. Um, USA, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that was really hilarious, right? Um, that's so telling that even that, you know, even though now you have, you know, um, an Iraqi army supposedly in control, you know, the uniforms are still, you know, <laughs> half tags of, you know, uh, US presence and, and intervention. Um, and uh, yeah, the security checkpoints, the militarization, I mean, the whole city has been completely changed. The, 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 uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, they call them the Bremer walls, which are blast walls. You know, these are the walls that you see in Palestine. Uh, you know, the wall, the dividing wall, right? Created in, in around Ramallah or Gaza, right? These walls that you know completely sever Palestine um, into you know many different parts. These were constructed all around Baghdad, specifically all over Iraq, but specifically all over Baghdad. So you're driving for miles and miles, and you have these blast walls closing off the entire city. So you no longer have access to the Tigris. You no longer have access to seeing what's behind the other side, which are usually like, uh, you know, some are, anyways, it, it basically the point is here is, is this, this change of the city, the way you move through the city, how you access the city. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I was with my seven-year-old child, at the time, no, actually she was six at the time, in January. And she's never seen that, you know? She's never uh, experienced walking in a city that is so militarized. She was shocked, you know, with the amount of tanks, uh, the amount of soldiers with, you know, with machine guns um, walking and stopping us and, and, yeah. and saying, what's going on? She's confused, right? Like why so many security checkpoints? Why so many, uh, why is our movement so um, curtailed? You know, these questions were, um, you know, hard for me to deal with at the time. And, and you know, I don't know if I fully processed it with my child. Actually, I'll just stop yeah. here, but I don't want to take too much. Before, David, I know yeah. we're going to turn to you, but I do want to say, Dina, what you're sharing is really reminiscent of my experiences taking my younger daughter, my now older daughter to Palestine, to Palestine, to do field work. Like, what does that mean? So maybe that's another conversation for us to really think about. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing that. No, I think it's a very actually important yeah. conversation to have if you want to talk about it a little bit more. You know, I think it's, it's this is a, the key. This is the key. I mean, talking about what's happening. I mean, I think this is what we're talking about is like the new generations, right? We are, why are we part of the diaspora at this stage? Yeah. I mean, we're part of diaspora as a product of these interventions, right? And our children going back, right? And, and, and this is the generation that supposedly has access, quote unquote, right? Access to some privileges, right? Some economic privileges, um, 
movement privileges, uh, uh, intellectual quote yeah. privileges, right? But what does it mean that they're stripped away from from these spaces? And these spaces are not just physical spaces, right? Like what the, the you know the the politics, the the the. the yeah, I think yeah, I think this is yeah. at the heart actually of of, of what we're talking about. But so I'll let you decide. Yeah. So we'll come back to that. We'll come back yes. to that in just a second because yes. we do want to talk about your project, um, an archive of future memories, letters to my daughter, and so perhaps that'll be an opportunity yes. for us to talk about. But if first, um, as you've already been suggesting, the impacts have been that you've been discussing affect women and children, and you were talking yes. about just what it means to get access to care and being in a hospital and having terminal illnesses. And I actually, um, that resonates because I did ride-alongs with terminally ill patients that were receiving care in um, Jerusalem that were coming from the West Bank and like what that means. Yeah. Um, and in addition to what you shared about in um, Iraq, for example, the Watson Center report states that 95% of Afghans are not getting, um, of Afghan communities are not getting yeah. enough to eat. Yeah. Um, and in women-headed household, that number is almost uh, it's 100%. Yeah. Um, and an estimated 18.9 million people, nearly half of the country's population, um, were acutely food insecure in 2022. Yeah. So um, my question to you, Dina, is how do you see the gendered implications of sanctions, war, and occupation in, in Iraq? Sorry, you went out for a second. Oh, no, no. So yes, what are the gendered implications that you're seeing, the impact of uh, the gendered impact of sanctions, war, and occupation in Iraq? If you could speak a bit more about that. Yeah, uh, um, I think there's many. I think um, because of the militarization of the streets, right? I feel like um, for many years, women did actually not leave the house. I mean, I'm talking about family members who went to college, who had jobs. Uh, let's talk about Baghdad for, for, for specifically, but I have family in Karbala and other parts of Iraq, but let's focus on Iraq, which is the best city, right? Where these women had, you know, cars and were, you know, had lives and you know social life for many years did not leave the house right uh for an example a more like you know a microscopic example so when i was there in 2004 which was a year after the invasion i remember being at my aunt's house with my cousin who's like a few years older than me and at the time she had just i guess no, she was working she was you know she was a doctor and she was work but she couldn't find job I don't remember she was volunteering with the Italian Red Cross and uh there was a, it was at night and there was this American a series of American tanks came and parked right in front of our house like literally in, in front of our house so we looked up and you know of course the lights were on you know these bright lights so we look out we're like what's going on right and right away my aunt and and uh my cousin who was at the time in her 30s turned off all the lights and was like, closed all the curtains and they're like, like, lay low, let's lay low. And I'm like, I'm like, no, I mean, obviously, you know, I have the privilege to say sweet, but you know, I was like, no, you know, so I opened the curtains, I kept the lights off, you know, respect. And then they were really freaking out. So I'm like, you know what, don't worry about it. And I walked out, I walked out, I opened the door, I walked out and, 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 and opened, you know, the gate door and I walked out and they're like yelling at me, like, go back, go back. And I just stood there because it, pissed me off I tried so hard while I was there that was the hardest thing for me while I was there trying not to say anything right like you have all these you know and and they were you, you know uh, not you know 
female soldiers, American female soldiers, as well as male soldiers, I could, I was so pissed. And I was, you know, I was like in my twenties, I was an organizer. I, you know, was organizing thousands of people on the street. I don't, you know, I don't, you know, but, you know, because I am with other members of my family, I have to, you know, be quiet. And that was really painful for me. So, you know, I, I think this is key for people. Imagine people who have jobs and have careers and, and go to college, go to school, cannot leave their homes. And not only just not leave their home, but then having to, when you have security patrol around, you have to turn off your light every time, you know, which happens several times a day, uh, turn, turn off the light, turn off, close the curtains and like lay low. And like, what does that do to your body? You know, what does that psychologically do to your daily experience? You know, I think that's just a kind of a micro example I want to share instead of just talking about numbers and, and you know, uh, I think this small example really shows how even the minor things that folks don't think about, right? Like a patrol around your neighborhood, right? Like what's, you know, how is that really affecting you? But that affects you in so many different ways where your whole life and your whole psychology and your whole, the way you move is now curtailed, right? And, and controlled. And you no longer, no one actually has to do that for you do that by yourself to yourself right so um yeah that's yeah I, it's it's so it's so important that i mean i i know i still have little automatisms that i learned um as a school child in belfast mm -hmm. uh, from the british army patrolling the streets and and the sense of perpetual watchfulness that you develop amongst other things but I did want to go back to something that I think it's really important for us at least to, to, to discuss for a moment, which is you were, you were talking about the leukemia rates climbing drastically. And I think one particularly disturbing result of the U.S.'s indiscriminate use of, of high-power weaponry is the long-lasting impact of environmental pollution, whether it's white phosphorus oh, or yes. depleted uranium, toxic oh, yes. soil and water. And there's certainly um, been a dramatic increase in birth defects across yes. Iraq from Fallujah to Basra. And I, I yes. wonder if you could say a bit more about that. And, and I don't know how much of that you, you witnessed or how much of that you studied, but it, it seems something that the U.S. bears an enormous responsibility oh, for and is completely disavowing. Yeah, and I think it's important to say, I think this, thank you again for that question, so important. And I think it's important to say how it also circles back here, right? So I think I'm, I'm gonna focus on that because I think uh, that's key, right? Is people don't even realize how it circles back here. So a lot of the, uh, the tanks, so obviously many things were left behind by the US Army. Um, uh, and, but most of, uh, the tanks, uh, the you know, all the metal scraps were actually transported to the U.S.-Mexico border, and Trump's wall, and before that it was Bush's wall, and before that was the other Bush's wall, was actually built by those uh, scraps and and metal and tank tanks that were exposed to depleted uranium, and. You know, for me, I think it's key to bring it back here because people like, you know, it's like so disengaged from, okay, well, you know, the plate uranium, you know, who cares about the environment, you know, who cares about how the water is getting polluted in the Middle East? How is, you know, how is the climate crisis related to the, you know, the U.S. Uh, 
interventions in the region and, and you know these mushroom clouds actually just something I'm gonna just say here. I think you know people don't know that actually you know think of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as the major kind of um, nuclear um, crisis. But actually in Iraq there were uh, the amounts of, of uh, there's basically there's a study that shows that uh, it's, it's it, uh, they compared it to Nagasaki and Hiroshima and what happened there. And the effects took longer, but actually it was almost seven times the intensity of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I can't remember the study now. This is like years ago when I did this, but I can share it with you once, you know, afterwards if you're interested in, in, in learning more about this. But I just want to say that. So a lot of people don't really, you know, relate to, you know, like I said, the, the, the climate crisis or the, you know, the water crisis in the region, but let's bring it back here, the US-Mexico border, right? So this is not only affecting Mexicans at the border, but it's also affecting everyone else on the other side of the border, right? Um, and, and what does it mean to be so close to, you know, these tanks, these walls that are made out of depleted uranium? There's many actually projects by Mexican-American artists who are actually engaging with that, that I think incredible. And at different times I was more involved, I'm not involved anymore with that. But I think that's key to, to, to investigate. And I think that should, this is under, under, understudied and under investigated uh, work that needs to be had, you know, about these, these, well, obviously the border, but even the materiality of the border, right? The well, Dina, if you, if you can find that article, we'll post it yeah. for listeners yeah. for sure. About, about uh, which one, which part about, the, uh, the border? Well, about, about the border, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and we don't have too much more time, Dina, but I did want to, before we close out, I would like to ask you about your multimedia project, which kind of speaks to the work that you're identifying that is being done on the US-Mexico border by creative, uh, by creatives. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about your multimedia project entitled An Archive of Future Memories, Letters to My Daughter, why an archive of future memories? Um, what is it that you'd like for your daughter to carry forward? And perhaps how does this project uh, speak to what you've briefly mentioned um, and shared about in terms of collective memory as perhaps a restorative practice? Yeah, that's such a beautiful question. It's so important. Um, I think, you know, the if I was going to do an outline, I think after, you know, my 20s being an anti-war organizer and my 30s, and then deciding to do, you know, so I was dealing with a lot of this as an organizer. Then I decided to go to graduate school because I thought, okay, you know, long-term as an organizer, it's not feasible. Like most of us end up going to the academy and, um, and doing that for many years. And I'm at a point in my life where I felt, you know, now I have my mother, I am in my late forties, that I felt like, you know, the most important part of all this to me, right, is uh, one, writing about this and, and or creating art about this or creating a dialogue about this, you know, not through kind of uh, just an intellectual process or an action-oriented process, uh, but one that really talks about the relationship to the lived experience, to the ephemeral, to, uh, to intimacy, to mothering, to, you know, to the, the, the future generations, right? Who are gonna lose this. I think about this all the time, right? My kid being born here and raised here, uh, whose Arabic is quote unquote broken and, and uh, prefers speaking English and, you know, is, is, is you know, becoming quote unquote American, right? Um, you know, and, and not only losing this history, losing a sense of home, I mean, you know, the layers I can go on and on. And I wanted to, one, share all these stories uh, with her, 
uh, and make sense of it for her to some degree, you know? Uh, I don't think it's ever gonna make sense to anybody, but I think it's a process of making sense is kind of sharing with her. And this is why it's future memories. You know, she's not gonna, I read these letters to her now and doesn't mean much at this point. Uh, not, I'm sure it means something to her. I don't know exactly what, but I think, you know, eventually she'll be interested in learning more about this. And I think it's for me, this is why it's an archive of future memories, right? Where whenever she's ready to pick up bits and pieces. And that's why they're, like I said, I did, it's a multimedia and book project. So to me, it was important that it's not just an academic book, but it was an archive project that's very, um, you know, that has, you know, it's, an, it's a feminist archive, right? So there's letter writing, there are, you know, photos, there's video projects, uh, mini video series, right? Um, there's a performance in there. Um, so um, yeah, um, and I, 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 it's, I'm still processing it, I'm, I'm, I'm still working on it. It's like a long-term project, so it continues to, to um, change and grow and, um, but I feel like this is missing. I think this is missing. I think people are not, you know, uh, not enough is being done around, uh, around work about intergenerational relationships uh, and it's, you know, and, and how these wars and militarization and sanctions and, and, and displacements um, and being a refugee, you know, what is, how does, how does that look and feel uh, not just for us, for the next generation, right? How does how do you make sense of it? Um, and I think again, um, intimacy, um, uh, you know, kind of you know, not just processing kind of the you know, the political and economic effects uh, uh, or issues of collective memory or you know the you know or infrastructure, but how do you really look at how our uh, our own makeup, our architecture, our own internal infrastructure is being changed. And, and what is, how does that, how does it make sense and where is it going, right? Um, so yeah, so yeah, but I just, I also um, want to say that it's an open project. So I always invite folks to, you know, reach out to me and, you know, to collaborate. There's different parts of this project that's very open to collaboration, you know, um, with other folks who want to be, you know, who want to participate where they want to you know share a prose poem or whatever it is you know um i'm i'm definitely i welcome that and i want to just if you don't mind want to do a pitch that i completely forgot i would have liked to share this with you earlier um in in on june 16th i'm part of uh, going to be uh quote unquote a witness to a hearing uh for the uh, uh, the, international, the International People's Tribunal on U.S. Imperialism, and this focuses mostly on the sanctions. So it's the website is sanctionstribunal.org, um, and our hearing is on June 24th at 7.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So it's, a, it's an Iraq hearing, International People's Tribunal on U.S. Imperialism, and I can share the link with you. Please, please share the link, and we'll definitely post that, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have for our show and we'll definitely have you back to discuss the, the multimedia project since it's so important given yeah. that loss of memory is such an important part of the, the migrant experience and the loss of shared memory. But I'm afraid that's all the time we have for the show today. Our guest has been Dina Aladib, an Iraqi-born feminist scholar, activist, artist, cultural worker, mother, and a former president's postdoctoral fellow in the Department of American Studies at the University of California, Davis. Thanks so much for spending your time with us today, Dina. 
And uh, if our listeners have enjoyed our show, please do consider making a donation to KPFK at kpfk.org. Your support and only your support keeps this program and this station on the air. And all our shows are also available to download at kpfk.org and can be found as podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Breaker. Thanks, as always, to our great KPFK board ops for production assistance, to Ankina Antaram for editing our shows, and to Soraya Zarouk for getting this out on social media. My name is David Lloyd for the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective. And on behalf of my co-host, Rana Sharif, and all of our collective members, I'd like to wish our listeners a great day. Music.